everyone, and welcome back to the Van Maren Show on LifesightNews.com. My name is Jonathan Van Maren, and today I'm going to be talking to a pro-life leader that I've known for almost 10 years now, almost since the very beginning of my own uh, involvement in the pro-life movement, and that is Mark Harrington. He has been a pro-life activist now for decades, and uh, we're going to be getting into what his career has looked like in the upcoming conversation. But I met him doing campus activism in Florida back when he worked for the Center for Bioethical Reform. And he would set up these enormous displays with his team, these enormous displays called the Genocide Awareness Project uh, that showed essentially abortion victim photography and compared abortion victims to victims of past injustices. And then protesters would show up. Tons of students would show up. We'd have all these amazing conversations. And that was my introduction to campus activism. It was at displays facilitated by Mark Harrington. And since then, he's left to begin an Ohio-based organization, uh, Created Equal, which is based out of Columbus. And they really do a lot of amazing stuff. They do tours very regularly around the country. They're on campuses non-stop reaching students. They send teams outside of abortion clinics. Uh, Mark is always working on a wide range of different strategies. When I was at the Republican convention just prior to Trump's election, uh, Mark Harrington was there with the Created Equal team and a number of other pro-life leaders, and he had a plane towing a massive banner uh, with an abortion victim on it over the headquarters and over the a convention center where the Republican convention would take place. So he's been doing fascinating and effective activism now for several decades. And so since I started this show, I really wanted to have Mark on to discuss how he got involved in the movement, what he's been doing since then, and where he thinks everything is headed. So without further comment from me, this is my conversation with pro-life leader Mark Harrington of Created Equal based out of Columbus, Ohio. So just to start off, you've been in, in the pro-life movement for decades, but how did you first get your start? Well, I got saved at 28. Uh, I lived on the other side of the world, the other side of the tracks. I was an evangelist for the dark side into all kinds of uh, nefarious activities, and I won't go into detail about those because those are long ago and far away, but I was radically saved, came to Jesus Christ, and then um, soon after that met my wife, Paula, at uh, the church I was attending, and she was volunteering for a, a pregnancy resource center, answering the phone calls at night from pregnant women that would come into our home, because back then they didn't have a toll-free number that women could call. They'd rotate the phone around to volunteers' homes, and so in the middle of the night, she'd be getting these phone calls and answering them and counseling these women against killing their babies, and I was like, well, you know, I wanted, to, <laughs> I was wondering what the heck this is all about. I was like, wow, this is, this is crazy. What's going on? And she showed me an aborted baby photo, and that was it. I remember that moment distinctly, like it's etched in my mind. Like time stopped, you know, it was one of those things that you, you kind of feel the Holy Spirit just gripping your heart 
And that changed my life. I mean, it was that quick. It was that immediate that I knew at that point I had to do something to stop the killing. And so one thing led to the other. I read the book Operation Rescue, which was to me kind of the uh, modern day book of acts being played out. So this was the, this was uh, right. the book by Randall Terry. Randall Terry, that's right. And uh, you know, then I I heard Randall was going to be nearby, and I went to hear him speak. And he got up there, and as he was back then, you know, the prophet banging out the righteousness from the pulpit. It was a powerful speech, and I was amen in it the whole time in the back of the room. And at the end, he asked me to pray, which was a big deal. I was like, oh, boy, you know, this guy who I've idolized, who I've read about, uh, asked me to pray for this huge group of people, and I did. And when I was walking out the door, Randall came up to me and put his hand on my shoulder, and he told me that God had something unique for me to do to stop the killing. And so <laughs> I was like, whoa, this is heavy stuff. Which year was this? Uh, 1992. 1992, okay. Yeah, so the timeline's about, you know, 88, 89, getting uh, married. Then my wife exposed me to the uh, abortion issue soon after, and then in 92, reading the book, meeting Randall. And, of course, this was when Bill Clinton was elected president, and he was going to bring in the the codification of, of Roe v. Wade. So this was like a big deal that was going on in the country, big discussion about the direction of uh, the pro-life movement and abortion and all that. And so Randall said that I should come to a leadership meeting with him and a bunch of other rescue leaders in Binghamton, New York, in his home that summer. And I, so I spent about three weeks with these guys and, you know, the usual suspects, Troy Newman, Rusty Thomas, <laughs> Flip Benham, Keith Tusey, all the original guys that were involved in rescue were there. Right, right, right. And uh, I just recall that that time and uh, how God just started implanting in my heart the the need to do this full time. So uh, it, it didn't take long before I started plotting the course forward to to work full time in the movement. So how did you get from from Operation Rescue to uh, where I met you first, which was the Center for Bioethical Reform and just for anybody who doesn't remember, because um, we have a lot of younger listeners who won't remember fully what Operation Rescue was all about. What were you guys plotting and what did you guys end up doing? Because if I'm not mistaken, the last major rescue took place in New York in 93 in terms of the uh, the official movement before the FACE Act really shut it down. All right. Uh, Operation Rescue was the largest civil disobedience obedience movement in American history. Over 50,000 Americans were arrested over a period of, uh, I don't know, five, seven years or so. <clears throat> but when Bill Clinton got into office, he put a hammer on that by passing the, the FACE Act, which is uh, the Freedom and Access Clinic Entrances Law, which made it a federal crime to block the doors to a clinic. And that, for all intents and purposes, ended that as a method to rescue children and address the abortion issue. But I was involved in several rescues. The last one I recall was in actually 1996. Okay. At the at the uh, Republican National Convention in San Diego when Bob Dole was the nominee. Even though FACE was law, the government wasn't enforcing it, and so we rescued there. That was the last time I did it. 
Um, so you know, at that point, Randall had moved on. I think at that point, uh, Flip Benham had taken over the, the reins of Operation Rescue. And then so from, from Operation Rescue, how did you begin the journey to becoming the activist you are now, which is focusing really on exposing the injustice through the use of abortion victim photography, as well as all these side projects targeting the abortion clinics? Well, interesting enough, uh, Greg Cunningham from CBR was uh, beginning to use these large photo murals comparing abortion to genocide on college campuses. The first campus was Penn State University. It was in 1998. And then he wanted to go to some of the biggest in the country. And, of course, here in Columbus, Ohio, we have probably one of, if not the largest, university in America. That's Ohio State. And so when coming to Columbus or coming to Ohio State, who do you want to get a hold of? You want to get a hold of me because I was involved in pro-life activism. And so he contacted me and brought the Genocide Awareness Project to Ohio State. And uh, I, I remember that moment distinctly because I first, for the first time really in my pro-life uh, experience, I saw a man who had an articulate, winsome, you know, approach to defending the pre-born, but was as bold as steel. The guy could stand against any opposition, and I loved the combination. And that's what was lacking, I thought, in some ways from Operation Rescue was bold, very bold, willingness to get arrested for what you believed in, but lacked a, a kind of a, a defense of the fa- of the position. And, of course, going to college campuses is the venue that we need to be focused on, that, that demographic of young people. And so Greg was, uh, was, you know, impressed me, obviously, and then soon after we began to work together to start a chapter here in the Midwest with CBR. What were those first campus displays like when uh, when Greg Cunningham started to take these huge displays, set them up on campuses, take them to Columbus? Because I went on Gap, uh, I think the first time I went was in 2010, and this project had been going on for over 15 years already. What was it like when you guys just started out with this project? Well, it was totally unknown. I mean, we, we had no idea what we were going to face. Uh, no one had ever even attempted anything close to this. Uh, it, it it took over the campus, and it still does today, for that matter, but it was like everything and all of what people would talk about for weeks on end. We had huge protests. We had sit-ins. We had people attempt to destroy the displays. All of that for for quite a long time. Um, so it was it was revolutionary. The idea of taking these large billboard size images of abortion victims to the very you know demographic that needed to see them the most had never been attempted before. So how did you end up uh, working for the Center for Bioethical Reform full time? Because as I understand it, prior to that. You've been sort of a pro-life free agent, um, hooking up with all sorts of different organizations, working with people right across the board and sometimes across the country. So how did you end up working full-time for Greg? Well, he professionalized the activist side of the movement. I mean, he made it uh, something that we could consider conceivably doing full-time. 
that it was something you could actually raise support, you could build an organization around you, and you could be effective at the same time. And that had just not been presented to me. And, you know, Greg's background, obviously, he walked away from, you know, a career that he could have made a lot of money, uh, you know, as an attorney, and he had, you know, that kind of background. So seeing him and seeing how he operated gave me a vision for being, you know, able to build an organization and do activism, which the two don't usually go together, you know. Right, you right. generally have activists that aren't very business-minded. Uh, that's not the case with, with CBR. So how would you have characterized the activist wing of the pro-life movement before professionalization? So you had Operation Rescue, which had leaders, but not really a formal structure, which is why there was so much fighting throughout the 90s as to who it was that was now running the rescue movement. And then you have the Center for Bioethical Reform saying we need to open branch chapters and those branch chapters are dedicated to activism, as you said. So going out in the streets with abortion victim photography, putting trucks with pictures of aborted babies on the side, you know, setting up displays on campuses like the Genocide Awareness Project. So uh, from your perspective, because you were there for both the before and the after, how did that professionalization of the activist wing in the U.S. take place? Well, as Greg Cunningham famously says, and has said in the past, we want to be bold and bright. Bold and bright. Operation Rescue was bold, and I'm not saying they weren't smart, but they weren't, uh, you know, really getting to the heart of the problem. Right. Uh, going to abortion clinics, as we all know, is important to try to rescue those being led away to death, but it's not going to solve the problem. The heart of the problem is the heart of man getting to getting, uh, the information out there change hearts and minds. And so he combined those two things together with abortion photos and imagery, uh, bringing those to campuses, doing it in a way that uh, was respectful in that we were professional in how we dealt with people who stopped by. In other words, it wasn't preaching, nothing wrong with that, of course, or someone on a megaphone shouting statements, pro-life statements. This was actually entering in to conversations, meeting people where they are, and then um, being able to present a, a, a an apologetic for the pro-life position that is a winning uh, winning position. And so you combine those two things together, abortion victim photography, college campuses, an intellectual debate, and you have a winning com- combination. That's why it was uh, you know successful still is today, that approach. How difficult was it to start up a, a chapter? To uh, I, I believe the chapter you began was uh, CBR Midwest, correct? That's correct, yes. How difficult was it to, to start up an established base like that? Well, it's pretty hard, actually. I mean, very few people succeed at it. Uh, but they they fail because they don't try it. They don't work hard at it. Right. And so what Greg, Greg taught us is... Um, if you work hard at the fundraising, you have a vision, you present it, people are going to support it. I think what we find, unfortunately, is much of our movement isn't serious about ending the killing enough to make it a uh, a vocation, you know, something they can conceivably do full-time. Well, he gave us that vision. 
And so I was confident that we could pull it off. Also, I obviously believe that, you know, if God calls you to something, he's going to provide. And scripture is clear on that. But we had to take care of, you know, the business side of it, so to speak. And that is, we wanted to make sure that our our bills were paid, that our families weren't going to be uh, unnecessarily, uh, you know, being dealt with here, too too much sacrifice being asked to them. Uh, In other words, there's nothing spiritual about being poor. Uh, You know, (laughs) we could pay our bills, we could do this work, do it professionally, recruit people, build an organization. That's what CBR brought to the table, and that's why, by God's grace, we were successful here. What are some of your memories for, from that time starting up CBR? Because one of, one of the things we've been trying to do on this podcast is talking to uh, pro-life activists and leaders about what it's actually like on the ground and getting things going, because that's a side of things people rarely see. And then there's the fact that, unfortunately, there are very, very few people who do pro-life activism. And so people just really have no idea what that's like for the people who are actually doing it. So what are a few of your memories from really just getting that started and then establishing yourself uh, over those couple of years, because you had one of the most successful uh, branch organizations of an activist uh, organization nationally in the entire country. Well, I I look back and it was probably the most exciting time of my life. Uh, The fact that I walked away from a a good career, making good money, uh, very stable, you know, in my career and so forth and the way things were going. But I knew, uh, you know, that there was more and I was unsatisfied with that and was given the opportunity to walk from my my job and raise support were some of the most exciting times living by faith, knowing God had called me to this work uh, and starting from scratch. I mean, but but understanding that, that I needed to have the long view and not getting frustrated with uh, setbacks and roadblocks that will be put in our way. And so that's, uh, you know, just keeping your hand to the plow, keeping focused on the vision, the mission, the calling, and uh, just never giving up. I mean, that was uh, those were the times that I remember best and were some of the sweetest times of my life, because that's really when we step out of the boat. I've asked uh, almost every leader I've had on this show this question. I've asked this of Scott Klusendorf, Troy Newman, and everybody's had a slightly different answer. So I'm really interested to hear what you have to say. What's it like being a family man in the pro-life movement? Because one of one of the things that I find is there's, is there's a lot of people who do uh, pro-life work for a time, Right, they do a pro-life internship at an organization like yours or an organization like mine. Uh, they volunteer for a bit, but then sort of air quotes real life gets in the way and they move on. And so, of the people who have worked not only full time on the pro-life movement, but have done it for decades, what has that been like? Well, it's been you know it's been difficult, but it's also been very rewarding for me and my family. Uh, there's no better thing to serve the Lord full time. And children that are brought up in that environment understand that being a Christian, a Christ follower, that you're not signing up for a normal life, that you're, you're actually signing up for something very different. Uh, and that's what Christ calls us to. So my family, my children, everyone 
were exposed to that early on, that this isn't, uh, you know, you're not going to go about life like everybody else. And that's a good thing. (laughs) We should be raising up our children that way, that they should be, we want them to be world changers, right? So they were brought out at an early age to do activism, go on our trips with the Genocide Awareness Project and everything else. So they were exposed to a lot of things that a lot of families probably wouldn't have chosen to do that, but I think it was overall a good good experience because they developed a, early on a very solid Christian worldview, understood that life is much more not about them, but about others and so forth. But it's not, it's also, you know, it has its pitfalls. And if, as an activist, if you don't set very, um, if you don't have bright lines drawn between your work and family life, it's very often you'll see people burn out. Their families pay a heavy price. I've seen many people, unfortunately, uh, leaders in this movement, uh, lose their families over this. Right. And it's simply because they don't have the uh, internal controls, if you will, to be able to provide, you know, some type of respite from the battle. Because like any soldier, they can't fight the war or fight the battle 24-7. They've got to have uh, a time and place for what, you know, we might consider as being normal. That is a family life, you know, hobbies, things that we enjoy doing outside of the work. And so... If you can build that into your life, protect your family as much as possible, because activism is a black hole. If you let it, it'll it'll suck everything out of you if you don't have any, right. uh, like I say, the controls necessary to put it in proper perspective. Because the thing about pro-life activism especially is that there there is always more work. You're never finished. There's yeah. always another baby that needs to get saved, somebody else that needs to get exactly. talked to. And so, yeah, it is. It's very difficult to figure out how to how to go. Well, where do you govern out, right? When do you realize that I did what I could? I need to go home now. That sort of thing. It's a very difficult. It's a difficult line to, to pick, I think, for a lot of people. No doubt. And I, I recall a special moment when I, I was in uh, the, the state of Maine. If you've been to Maine, it's a beautiful state. Lots of beautiful mountains and and. Uh, bodies of water and that kind of thing and I had a moment just to sit on one of those mountains and contemplate my life and context to this injustice that the world's facing and I don't uh, generally I'm not a charismatic in that I don't believe God speaks to me all the time but there was clearly a message that uh, from the Lord that he made it clear that it isn't my fight to fight it's a, you know I have a part in that but to think that I can end abortion or that I can carry this weight around with me uh, is is ridiculous, and and it's obviously not going, you know, it's not going to happen. And that he sees every single baby that's being killed, he bears that burden every single day, sees them all, and uh, it was a relief in in a sense that I knew my part, I could play a part, uh, and just be faithful to that calling was all that I could ask of myself and all the Lord would ask of me. So when you were getting going, what did your average year look like? One of the questions I get as somebody who works full-time in the pro-life movement, I had it actually recently, they're like, so what do you do all year? Because because so <laughs> few people work full-time in the pro-life movement, I'm sure you've had this before, people asking you if it's a real job and things like that. So what 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 did your average year look like? How, what did you... 
What did, how did your time get spent, I should say? Well, as the director of the organization, my time spent differently than, say, our staff or some of our interns who are very heavy on the outreach side. In other words, they're out on the sidewalks and on the college campuses much more than I used to be, and my role has changed over the years. Not to say I don't still participate in those. In fact, I was just up at the presidential debates in Detroit where uh, I almost got arrested. And By the way, we're going to be suing the city of Detroit over that. But uh, my role has changed to more of a vision casting, making certain that we're staying on track, being faithful to the mission we've been given. And uh, it's not very exciting, but uh, fundraising. I mean, you right. got to pay yep. the bills. Yep. <laughs> you got to you got to pay staff. You got to make sure that uh, you can sustain this, and 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 also, even more importantly, when I'm dead and gone, uh, that there's something left behind. You know, there's a legacy there that others can pick up and continue. So that's where I'm focused now, kind of in you know the latter stages i guess of my activism as a pro-lifer to make certain that what we've built here in uh at created equal will carry on long past uh, my lifetime so tell us a bit about uh, how created equal came into being because i i recall having conversations with you and seth Dreyer, who's who's around my yep. age um, years ago when you were just getting everything started and it just started off with two of you, but for now for anybody who checks out created equal, uh, on Facebook or goes to your website, we'll see these huge staff members with a ton of young people. I visited you guys two years ago, I think at your office, uh, in Columbus and there was a house full of people. And I think Seth told me you guys have moved again to somewhere even yeah, bigger. That's true. So how did you how did you get from starting created? Well, what was the vision behind created equal, and then how did you grow from two guys into this very big organization now? Well, we took what we learned from the Center for Bioethical Reform, and that is the use of abortion victim photography, reaching the most vulnerable demographic, which is college and high school students, and beyond that, this whole idea of raising up the next generation of leaders. Which, you know, I love Greg and CBR, but I just didn't see that happening to the degree that I thought it should. And so that's why we launched Created Equal. We focused on youth, college and high school, to raise them up, to train them, and then giving them meaningful ways of, of reaching out to the culture. Uh, so Created Equal, the name itself, of course, comes from our Declaration of Independence, uh, and the idea that we're created equal is central to the whole notion of the life in the womb. Uh, you know, that we're, we're created in the image of God. That's what makes us distinct and different from all of the rest of God's creation. Therefore, we also find our equality or our dignity. And so I think that message resonates with youth. The idea of equality is in vogue today. So I think that helped. Uh, the idea of the justice rise, the idea of, of uh, taking historical social reform examples like the civil rights movement, which appealed to young people, and applying that to the pro-life movement and projects like the justice ride, where we put people on a, a bus and take them on the road and train them and take them to college campuses. And similar, not not closely related necessarily to the civil rights freedom rides, but the notion is the same. Right. 
And that is, you get people and you get them all together, there's a certain synergy that takes place, and they begin to believe that they can stand for something that's bigger than themselves. So when you look at, at the different projects you do, because I've, I, so I, I, talk to Seth and different people from Create Equal fairly frequently. I, I usually talk, I usually get the chance to speak to your interns once every, once every summer, which is really cool. But you have these different teams. So you have people that go out and do 11th hour ministry in front of the clinics. You have people who go on the campuses. But I've met up with you guys outside the Republican convention where you were towing a massive banner. Um, this was just prior to Trump's election. Uh, you have Operation Weak Link where you're yeah. working on all these different side projects. So what is the full range of activism that Created Equal does? Because you're basically attacking the abortion issue from a whole bunch of different strains at the same time. Well, our core mission, of course, is raising up the next generation. So it all has to kind of feed into that. And then, that, and then making projects that are effective in reaching people and giving young people that tool to use. So whether it's Operation Overpass, standing on overpasses, which are large banners of aborted baby uh, photos, or like you say, the trucks or the airplanes or the Jumbotron, or it's all basically the same, trying to reach as many people as we can, as fast as we can, with a, with the graphic image, because those images speak louder than words, Right. and then giving youth, young people, the opportunity to participate in those. So... I think it's the best training program around in that we're giving people a practical way of actually using what they learn in the classroom. That's the vision of Created Equal. So one of the things I, I wanted to ask you is, is a question a lot of people ask me, which is, you know, abortion is a very depressing topic. Um, in many ways, the culture seems to have declined uh, right across the board. And so what are the sorts of things that keep you going? Uh, I, I know a lot of people don't know that we, we get to hear a lot of amazing stories as well as depressing stories. So what are the, some of the stories of saved lives, change hearts that really keep you going when you look at your career in the pro-life movement? Well, there was a conversation with Greg Cunningham that I'll never forget, and that is we were driving home from a, a fundraising meeting and Greg turned to me and he said, you know, Mark, abortion ruined my life. And I didn't know what he meant at the moment, but then I thought about it later and I thought, oh, that kind of makes sense in that we all have plans. Uh, you know, they may not be what, what we thought they'd be, but as long as babies are dying, uh, you know, you can't live a normal life. And that uh, a country that kills children, we should be behaving a lot differently than one that doesn't. So... There's no turning back. I mean, it, it, to me, it's, a, it's more of a duty, if if you will, a right. responsibility. I wake up every morning knowing that's what I need to be doing. I find a lot of comfort in that. Um, gives you purpose, right? Gives you consistency and longevity, if you know that's the reason. But I also do it because I know this is the best way to work out my faith, because we should love our neighbors ourselves. So this is this is a practical way to love the the I think the one that needs it the most. That is the unborn. Uh, they need our love more than anyone else because they don't have anybody to turn to other than us. So I guess in the macro, that's kind of what keeps me motivated day by day. Is that I know I'm at the center of the will of God uh, when I'm 
saving children, reaching out and training the next generation, and changing hearts and minds in a culture that uh, increasingly, unfortunately, doesn't seem to be interested in <laughs> in defending the preborn. On a micro level, uh, what are some of the stories that really stand out to you of babies that were saved? That when a woman was going to have an abortion and she changed her mind, because I actually get people asking me, does that still happen? And that makes me realize how disconnected pro-life people often are from the pro-life movement at large, because I find that that seeing somebody change their mind on abortion is now so normal for our street activists that they don't even consider yeah. it really an exceptional thing anymore. Well, that's true. I mean, we, we have, I don't even know what the numbers are right now. We, we keep track of them, but we have hundreds of, of people who have changed their minds on college campuses I guess the one one of many that stands out would be when I went to Albuquerque, New Mexico. They were trying to pass an ordinance to outlaw 20-week abortions. And in Albuquerque, that's the late-term abortion capital of the United States, and there's an abortion mill there. And the morning that we were out, before we went canvassing in the, in the neighborhoods to get this ordinance passed, we were at that late-term facility. And I don't do a lot of sidewalk counseling anymore, but I, I do on occasion. And I usually reserve my comments for the men that go inside right. because as a man, I can speak to the men and challenge them. And I recall, uh, you know, a, a couple didn't know if they were married or not going in and the, the, the woman was visibly pregnant. I mean, this is a late term abortion center. So she had more than a baby bump. I mean, it was, it was for sure. And I just called out to him, and I, I I just told him, I said, listen, you need to be a man. You need to stand up for your wife or your girlfriend or your baby and be a man, because men don't take their children and their wives into slaughter. Stand up, be a man, turn away from there, bring her, bring her out of there now. And, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm speaking loudly from the sidewalk, and you never know what's going to resonate with someone. And about five minutes later, he comes out with, with her and uh, comes over to us and tells us that they're not going to abort that their, their baby. Right. And they were married, uh, and they had just begun to consider coming back to the church or, you know, coming back to Christ and so forth. So we had a really precious time of prayer for them. And, uh, you know, it's just one of those things. The interesting thing, that same day I got arrested and ended up spending the night in jail for, <laughs> for uh, when we were in front of a, one of the voting centers. So it was, a, it was an eventful visit <laughs> to Albuquerque. But I knew I was there for a reason when I had an opportunity to speak to that man. And he turned around and, and, and they did not abort their baby. So that happens. Uh doesn't happen as often as it should on these uh, in front of these abortion clinics, but when it does, it's a it's a it's a wonderful time of victory. One of the uh, the things, another another thing that people don't understand, and if you go to the Created Equal Facebook page, there's a ton of videos of this happening. Is there's a lot of violent backlash to pro life activism, to peaceful pro life activists that are just standing there manning displays, and there are people that will come up, they'll trash the displays, they'll scream and shout. This has happened dozens of times to us already this year at the, at Canadian Center for Bioethical Reform, and I know it's happened to you guys quite a bit too. How do you guys train your interns to respond to the fact that this is going to happen? Because I know a lot of people make fun of young people and they make fun of millennials, 
But my response to that sometimes is I see young people take all kinds of crap every day and they do it with like such grace and conviction. And honestly, the way they keep their tempers and how they keep their cool, I think should be incredibly impressive to anybody. They've got people, you know, inches away from their face, calling them horrible names. So how do you guys train your young people to deal with the inevitable backlash that comes with being a pro-life activist? Well, we learn from the best. Uh, Scott Klusendorf, Greg Cunningham, Stephanie Gray, yourself and others, all throughout our movement, we have the arguments. We know we do. We have the best arguments. So as long as you know that and you're going into a conversation, you won't make it about yourself. So when someone attacks you, calls you names, gives you the middle digit or worse, might vandalize your signs, we don't respond in kind. Uh, we realize that uh, they're doing it out of anger or ignorance or what have you. So that's number one. Number two is, you know, we've trained our youth in understanding historical social reform and that reformers who are effective are rarely liked, and liked reformers are rarely effective. So right. we understand it's part and parcel with our mission that we're going to have these kinds of reactions, violence, vandalism, and otherwise. So they know that all going in. They're trained to handle it. We teach them the art of passive, nonviolent resistance like the civil rights leaders did with the Freedom Riders and others. And that is that you never respond in a kind violently. You take the abuse if necessary um, because, you know, that's the kind of reaction that the world looks at and thinks, wow, that's that's unusual. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Who are the violent people here? Right. Yeah. The, the violent people here are the ones that also kill children. So uh, because we're a peaceful movement, you know, that's ingrained into our everyday work. And we make it certain that those who work for us and volunteer with us uh, pledge to treat people uh, in a kind and respectful manner, regardless of how they treat us. Uh, on just a slight shift, uh, you've been in the movement now for decades. And so when you look at the pro-life debate as it is now, uh, I remember talking about Donald Trump with you in the lead up to the election. None of us thought that he would be solid on the issue. Turns out he has. Uh, we have no idea how 2020 is going to go yet. When you take a look at the, the pro-life movement and, and the pro-life issue in the macro sense, What's your feel for where we're at in this debate in the United States? I think that we're experiencing a respite. I think Donald Trump has opened a window that wouldn't have happened otherwise. We would be dealing with a Clinton presidency. Things would have been hugely different. So we have an opportunity, a window, to really seize upon some things that we wouldn't have been able to do before. That's what you're seeing. I mean, the state legislatures enacting uh, these abortion bans and heartbeat bills and others. And then you have states like New York and Rhode Island and others going the other direction, all in uh, anticipation, I guess you could say, to the possible overturning of Roe versus Wade. Uh, I'm not one of those who's, who's, uh, is all that optimistic <laughs> that uh, we're going to see that happen in the in the near term, I mean, I can, I, I, I know how to count. Right. And right now, I don't think we have the numbers on the court. But with a with a election with the re-election of Donald Trump in 2020, I think that becomes 
uh, within grasp, you know, the idea that we might actually have a majority that could uh, uh, overturn Roe. So, I mean, that's all on the political front. But I, I, culturally speaking, uh, I think the American people are giving us a second hearing. We have an opportunity, again, to speak on this issue where we didn't before. It's, you know, it's more in the news. It's it's a bigger issue politically. People are talking about it all across America. But the culture is heading in one direction. I mean, we are having a sexual and moral revolution in the Western world, including America and Canada and elsewhere. And I don't think that's going to be reversed anytime soon. And as long as that's the case, people are going to be seeking a remedy for it, which is abortion. Uh, you can make it illegal, but people are going to still want it somehow. So we've got a lot, a lot of work to do. I'm not one of those to, to give people false hope, but I do believe that we, we do have an opportunity, a window here, and we better take advantage of it uh, because it could be short-lived. When you say the pro-life movement has a lot of work to do, when you look at the ground, uh, what does that task look like for you? Because you can ask five pro-life activists this question, and you'll get five different answers. So what's what's your vision of what needs to be done on the ground in the years ahead? Well, it's old school. It's 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 changing hearts and minds. It's the public square, something we've been dedicated since I've started this work. And I think historically that's how change comes. There's no silver bullet. There's no easy way. And if we're looking for that, we're going to be sadly uh, disappointed. Uh, you know, we all look to, say, social media and other ways of reaching people. But when we put the, the the message or the fate of our message in the hands of people who don't support us, the gatekeepers, whether that be the mainstream media or social media or the high tech, you know, the giants like uh, Facebook and all the rest, I think that uh, that's an error we need to be fully aware of and be prepared to pivot if necessary uh, to go back. To, I mean, the, the tried and true method is, is the public square. It's not the easier way, but it's it's the way that's proven to be successful over time. So I guess a, a final question would be when you're looking at what's going on, and there's a lot of people that are listening to, to this podcast who are wondering, well, uh, what can I do for the pro-life movement? What can I do to make a difference? And so you as, as a pro-life leader with a couple of decades of experience, what would your advice to people be? Because not everybody can do uh, what your organization does, what my organization does, but everybody can do something. So what would you advise people who want to do something? What would you advise them uh, uh, to start doing? Well, I'm of the opinion that we shouldn't do what we most want to do, <laughs> but what most needs to be done. Right. <laughs> you know? Uh, if there are people doing what they want to do that, that for whatever reason they've chosen to do, and there are a lot of people doing it, then maybe that's something you shouldn't do. Do something that most needs to be done. That's why I do what I do, because there are very few people who are dedicated to raising up a generation, an organization that does the hard work day in, day out of reaching people where they are. Uh, using the First Amendment, free speech, in the public square. I think that's what most needs to be done, but it's rarely what we most want to do. And it's not going to get you the invites to the banquets. You're likely not going to get the television interviews, the pats on the back, the celebrity status that unfortunately 
comes along with much of what we con- consider pro-life ministry today. Uh, it's, but it's going to be the most effective thing, and it's the thing that we most need to be doing. So where can people find your work to check out what you're up to? Yeah, what, what they need to do is go to createdequal.org. Uh, we can assist you in using all the tools that I've been talking about. That is abortion victim photography and video all across America. You don't need us to do it. We can train you how to do it in your own community. Go to createdequal.org, and uh, all of our resources are there. If you want to have us come in and train your people, we're happy to do it. But we're not going to do it for you. <laughs> we're going to train you to do it. We're not the hired hands of the pro-life movement. We refuse <laughs> to do that. We've got to replicate ourselves uh, in order to get the job done. Well, Mark, thanks a lot for taking the time to go through all this with us. You're welcome. Good to be with you. Ladies and gentlemen, that was my conversation with Mark Harrington. Thank you so much for joining us again this week. If you want to check out past shows or other podcasts or news commentary, opinion commentary, head right on over to lifesightnews.com where you can find uh, the podcast. The podcast is available on all of the different podcast platforms. Thanks so much for joining us this week, and we do hope that you'll join us again next week.